here to introduce our speaker tonight. Um, I was doing just fine until I read my fortune cookie at the Aljoy. <laughs> Your help may be needed in an embarrassing situation. <laughs> that one thought, the pyramid. <laughs> Who is it? What's happening? Is it me? <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm really glad Scott could come all the way from California to be with us tonight. I really admire what he has to say and have enjoyed being with him today. Scott R. My name's Scott and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, buddy. Are you, are you going to sit up here while I'm talking, Mike? Okay, now here's the deal. If he sits up with it here with a sour puss while you all are laughing... We're going to take a vote about every 15 minutes, and you tell me if he's not allowed to sit up here anymore, okay? So I'm just going to poll you. We'll give him about 15 minutes and stuff, but if he doesn't, if, if he annoys you at all, you let me know, and I'll have him sit down, okay? All right. It's your meeting. I can't even uh, begin to tell you how much I appreciate being asked uh, to come spend the weekend with you. I've just had a great weekend. I, I love Mississippi. I love being in Mississippi, and I, I truly don't think there's any place I've ever been treated with uh, more hospitality and friendship and love, and I just love you guys. It's just been a great weekend, and the other speakers have just been fabulous. Uh, I'm Unfortunately, my only sadness about the weekend is I have to leave early tomorrow uh, to start a vacation with my wife, tough, tough life I've got, and uh, I won't uh, get a chance to hear my friend Tom I, who I uh, just love and, and admire, and uh I've gotten a chance to spend some time with this weekend. And I want to thank Don for being an incredible. Uh, I mean, this is a host who, you know, did some of my laundry and fed me crawfish. I mean, I, I want to marry Don. I want to. I mean, I, I just, I, I just like to wear him for a couple of weeks, you know. I, and I've been having this incredible experience all weekend. I, I sponsor a man in Los Angeles who was brought up in Mississippi, and all over his inventory. In his 10 steps appears this resentment. He's so, so pissed off from people in, in, in L.A. for not being friendly because he's from Mississippi. So he says, hi, hi, hi. And people think he's weird, you know, because he just nods to people and says howdy on the street. So because of his resentment, he's part of my reaction to his resentment. I've started saying hi to a lot more people in L.A. But I'm not used to people saying hi back. So I've been in Mississippi two days. People are going hi. And I'm going, what the hell is going on? I'm just walking in. You guys started out, you know. So I could get used to it. I could get used to it pretty quick. Uh, if you're new, I'd like to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous and tell you I have a great life today. And if you're, you're new, I'm sure that just thrills the crap out of you. Uh, just, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're just overjoyed for me. Uh, because I know I was having, uh, I just was so happy for the people having a good time when I got here. I was just overjoyed for them. And I, I used to sit in my seat and listen to people talk about the new family in the house. And, and I'd think, you know, maybe you'll go home tonight and uh, maybe your house will blow up. Maybe you'll blow up. And then we'll see how spiritual you are next week. So if you're new, I'd like to welcome you. To Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're a drug addict, I'd like to welcome you to AA. If you're a dope fiend, which is somehow worse than any of us, I'd like to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. And just suggest that you catch alcoholism. Just catch alcoholism. 
You can have anything else you want. You can be the Bigfoot of dope addicts. You can be like a dope Goliath, you know, but just catch alcoholism. We have a book written about alcoholism by alcoholics. We don't have a book about the Bigfoot of dope addicts or anything like that. I, I love, uh, I, I listen very carefully how people identify, and recently a friend of mine called me, he heard a guy identify as a crack monster. Ooh, that's scary, crack monster. Ooh, wonder if they have like a Halloween costume for crack monster. Also, another one of my current favorites is Tweaker. I like that. I don't know what that is. I don't know if you, like, come with batteries or something. I don't know what the hell that's all about. But welcome, all you Tweakers. And what what uh, what I pray for you is that you stick around long enough to get a diagnosis, see if you can uh, catch the dreaded alcoholism. Um, if you don't catch the dreaded alcoholism, you could die from it. And if you catch it, you get better. I've seen plenty of people not catch alcoholism, go out and die from it. And then I see people catch it. I, uh, my sponsor's fond of saying, and I feel the same way, that when he came in, he uh, was just a mild alcoholic. And um, he's full-blown now. And it's got, his, his case seems to get worse every year the more, uh, uh, the more he learns how to appreciate his alcoholism. If you're, um, if you're bored... I'd like to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd like to tell you my favorite story about being bored in AA. It happened to a guy from my old home group. His name was Jeff D. And I, I don't think I'll ever forget this. He was new, and he was at a meeting, and he was shifting around in his seat, and his sponsor said, what's the matter? And Jeff said, I'm bored. And his sponsor said, well, you know why you're bored. And Jeff said, no, no, I don't. His sponsor said, you're bored because you're boring. That's why you're bored. And for Jeff, it was like an acid moment. He went, wow, wow. It just blew him away. He thought, what a cool thing to say to a newcomer, you know? And he could hardly wait till a newcomer told him that he, they were bored. Thirteen years later, he's 13 years sober. No newcomer has told him yet that they're bored. He's at a meeting in my old home group, and he's with a young lady who was new, and she was shifting around in her seat, and he said, what's the matter? And she said... Uh, she said, uh, I'm bored. He said, well, you know why you're bored. She said, yeah, because I'm with you. <laughs> so if you're bored, I'd like to welcome you to AA. You've stumbled into a good AA conference. You've made a mistake. You're in with the good guys, you know. There's prominently displayed AA literature here. I've heard nothing but talk about alcoholism since I got here. You know, I've been welcomed every time I've walked down the hall or in the room. But that's kind of all over Mississippi, but especially here. She's not having a good time. She's not having a good time. Um, and uh, sometimes I can go to a meeting of AA and not even hear a passing reference made to God, the big book, or the steps, and it confuses the hell out of me. If I go to a meeting and all I hear about is issues and boundaries, I get very, very confused if I don't hear about alcoholism. And if you're new, I just want to tell you, don't drink. you got to not drink. you got to not drink, and you'll have an issue and a boundary, I guarantee you. But you got to not drink. The not drinking part's a moose. If it was not for the not drinking part, we would be a much bigger organization. I guarantee it. Right? Because a lot of people want our deal, but it's that gall darn not drinking thing really screws a lot of people up. If you want to drink, don't. Don't drink. If you're new and you're wondering when you're going to get in touch with your feelings, stay sober. They'll get in touch with you. I guarantee it. 
If you snuggle up at night and say, Satan descends from the ceiling of your room, those are your feelings getting in touch with you. I uh, had a miserable journey to Alcoholics Anonymous. I uh, grew up in the Bronx in New York City. Anybody from the Bronx? Nobody? Nobody here on the Witness Protection Program even? No? A couple of people just looked at their feet, I'll tell you that. I like when you're talking to Montana and Guido's up there. That's just great. Yeah, I love the prairie. I love it. It's great, you know. What is, what is he doing there, you know? Looks like the devil's scouring pad, you know, in the middle of... Um, and uh, I was brought up in uh, to a completely insane family. My family is just absolutely nuts. And my wife never believed me about them until she met them. And my mom threw an engagement party for us. And my aunt came and wore her wig backwards, and it had a bun on it. <laughs> right out there. <laughs> And it was not a uh, it, was, <laughs> it was not a mistake. It was a look she was going after. <laughs> they were just nuts. Um, <laughs> if you got anything for free in my family, it meant it was stolen. Uh, I had <laughs> I had an uncle who was a welder who used to get free bales of steel wool, and uh, my aunt took a decorating course and made throw pillows and filled all the throw pillows with the steel wool. Now, after a while, that stuff works its way through on you. So when, when you were at their house, if you looked at the room, everybody was moving a little bit, you know. The whole room was like a living, pulsing, living thing. They were nuts. Uh, now, I was not alcoholic when I came in alcoholic times. I didn't have alcoholism uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm Jewish, and Jews don't drink. Uh, because it might dull the pain, and uh, you you don't you don't want that to happen. You you want to be present for any agony opportunity that presents itself. You don't want to take the edge off that kind of misery. And um, <laughs> my uncle was one of the top ten welterweights during the 30s. He was owned by the Purple Gang. We were talking about it at dinner, and uh, who my grandmother thought were like the Boy Scouts, because anytime she wanted like a, an apartment, all of a sudden the family that was living there would disappear. And uh, my, my uncle's name was Izzy Redman. And when he fought in Atlanta, Georgia, he was concerned about anti-Semitism, so he had his name changed to Izzy Goldberg, so no one would know he was Jewish. Now, I, I want to tell you, I wish, I wish I was lying about this. Because this is my genetic pool. These are my people. This is not the kind of thing you go and brag to the bartender about, about what s morons, you know. Um, and uh, there was uh, mental and physical abuse and uh, suicide attempts and chronic institutionalization. Um, just craziness. And if you're new here, all I've got is good news for you, because my family did not have one single solitary thing to do with making me an alcoholic. I'm not telling you they weren't nuts. They were nuts. I'm not telling you that a lot of damage didn't get done. I'm not telling you I didn't have to do a lot about that. I'm telling you they didn't make me a drunk. If they had made me a drunk, then I could go to psychotherapy, I could work out my family problems, and I could drink like a gentleman. I mean, if my family had really made me an alcoholic. Now, one of the other reasons I was not alcoholic when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous is I had been in psychotherapy for 18 years. I was going to be dead, but I was going to understand it. 
I was going to be dead with no edible conflict at all, but really, really dead. And um, I'm not putting therapy down. It's great stuff. It says on page 133 of our book, if you need a doctor, go get one. My colossal blunder is I was trying to treat alcoholism with psychotherapy, which is kind of like showing up at a gunfight with a knife once a week and getting these colossal ass whoopings, just terrible ass whoopings. And I was doing good work in therapy. So um, it doesn't matter how much therapy I go to. It doesn't matter how much I work on those family problems. And look, if you're new, I'm not, you know, you might have had some really bad stuff happen to you. I'm not telling you it didn't happen. I'm not calling you a whiner if you hurt over it. I'm not telling you anything like that. I'm saying that for me, you can't make me a drunk that way. It's psychological. And if alcoholism is really threefold, if it's a weird physical reaction to alcohol that makes it impossible for me to moderate or control once I begin. And if you're special and a drug addict, try some controlled crack smoking. You know, just fill your mouth up with crack smoke. Say, I'm just not in the mood today and blow it out. And if you can do that, hats will fill the air. I guarantee it. <clears throat> but if you've got this weird physical reaction to alcohol, and it's a strange thing, you can feed anybody on the planet heroin every day, and they will become physically addicted to it. It's a law of nature. It's a chemical law. You feed anybody on the planet alcohol every day, only the alcoholics become addicted to it. That's just the way it is. They're a class apart. Now, it does take a certain kind of person to take enough heroin to become addicted, but that's for another evening. We're talking about alcoholism tonight. So if you have this weird physical reaction to alcohol, and it's coupled with some fascinating thinking, it's, it's referred to as alcoholic thinking. It's the source of a lot of mirth at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. It's fabulous stuff. I love reasons to drink. I collect them. I have a friend named Larry who the first time he ever read our book, he read the first page of chapter 4, which contains a sentence which says basically, facing an alcoholic death or a spiritual life is not always an easy decision to make. And it, it's tough. Die in a pool of my own urine, spiritual experience. It, it, it's a hard choice. And uh, <laughs> the first time he ever, <laughs> he ever read that sentence, he said to himself, well, how bad an alcoholic death are we talking about here? That, that's not a normal reaction to that sentence. It's just not. That no normal person would think that. My favorite reason to drink that I have heard to date, I was sponsoring this guy for about 10 minutes, and he, uh, this was a guy, he lived with his wife, he was a male prostitute, and he had a gay lover. And he called me to tell me that he drank. And I said, oh, why? <laughs> I have an inquiring mind. I want to know. And without missing a beat, he said, I caught my wife cheating on me. <laughs> you can't write that. You can't make that up. You can't generate that. Now, I want to tell you, I get it. And I get that he came out of his mouth one of two ways, both of which I unfortunately understand. One of them is, it was either, a, it might have been an occasional hunch or inspiration. Boom, he just came out with it. Boom, a pearl. Boom. He was cornered. He had to come up with an answer. And boom, there it is. That pearl. Or, that was the product of two weeks in the rat maze. That was the product of hour after hour after hour on that hamster wheel. Hearing it whirring around, man. It was one or the other. It was either boom or it was 
He had been there. He had just turned the world a little bit. He had tweaked it a little bit. He had cut and pasted and rearranged reality. He had rearranged his reality to accommodate the walk to the drink. And he had worked hard. If you're new here, I admire your industriousness. Lazy, you're not. Um, so if you have this weird thinking that keeps driving you to drinking, <laughs> to taking a drink that you can't stop taking, well, that's when I developed this horrible cancer of the soul, this spiritual tapeworm that ate me up from the inside and left me hollow and insane and alone and absolutely befuddled. Now, if you're trying to treat that with psychotherapy, my best to you. Psychotherapy is mental, psychological, that would be one-fold. And then alcoholism, the dreaded alcoholism, is mental, physical, and spiritual, so that's three-fold. So you're trying to conquer a three-fold illness with one-fold, you're two-fold short. My heart goes out to you. And that's what I was trying to do, because right off the bat, right from Jump Street, when I was growing up in the Bronx, I was in this alcoholic dilemma, and I was in big trouble. I was being asked to leave uh, um, educational institutions, um, and uh, they put me in psychotherapy real young. And I went to the therapy, and I really thought that the therapy was going to help me dodge this alcoholic bullet. Now, I'm going to talk about drugs for a while, and I want to talk about something before I talk about the drugs. I want to apologize to anybody who is offended by talking about drugs in AA, and I want to tell you why. I believe in unity. I believe in the triangle that holds us together. And I believe, I used to, I was fed, I was lied to when I came to AA. I had a couple of guys who I respected tell me that you can't destroy Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, you can. History says you can. And if you ever get a chance to take a look at uh, uh, any of the material we have about a society called the Washingtonians, there's some tapes on the table to talk about them, as a matter of fact. It talks about a society that was so huge that was uh, its purpose was for people to achieve and, and maintain sobriety. They were so big that for us to equal their numbers in ratio, we'd have to have 10 million members of AA just in the United States. We have 2 million internationally. But that's how big they were. Abraham Lincoln gave a speech at one of their commencements. Nobody even knows they existed anymore. Nobody except for a few people who study them in AA. And the reason why is because they let non-alcoholics in and they got, they got involved in politics and money. That's what happened. And I used to get, you know, when I talk about drugs early on and it would anger some people, I, would, I wouldn't be able to understand why. And, and I think the reason why is, is it, they felt it threatened unity. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm an alcoholic who almost didn't catch alcoholism because of my drug use. I'm an alcoholic who almost died from alcoholism because I used drugs. So that's why I talk about it. Plus, I've been asked to tell my story, and if it still annoys you, you've got to complain to the committee. They heard my tape before I came here. It ain't my fault. <laughs> <clears throat> I overcame my alcohol problem with marijuana. I'd like to welcome all the marijuana smokers here tonight. You remember WOW, right? WOW. Wow. And right after wow usually came, what? What? Wow, what, wow, what, wow, what, wow, what? Watching a pot smoker is like watching a dog try to run on linoleum. There, there, there's a lot of activity, but no movement. But they're very, very busy people. I conquered uh, marijuana with uh, pills. I uh, triumphed over pills with cocaine. Cocaine is an excellent drug. It's particularly good for sex if you enjoy sex from the Neolithic period. 
I, uh, I, w- <laughs> I was victorious over cocaine with heroin. Heroin's a very complicated, dark, artistic drug. Then you cross the line and become a vomiting pig. It's just a little hop, skip, and a jump. And, uh, and then I drank till I didn't want to be a drunk. And, uh, and, uh, my dad thought he was a real loser when I was a kid. I, I absolutely agreed with him. I, I thought he was a sap. My pop never made more than $10,000 a year. My brother and I never, uh, went to school with ripped clothing and never missed a meal. Um, my last year out, out there, I made $80,000 and my children missed meals all the time and went to school with ripped clothing all the time. Now, how, how does that happen? How can you put a picture of those two men down next to each other? How can I come up with my pop being a loser? Well, our book says once a certain kind of thinking becomes established in someone with alcoholic tendencies, they're probably beyond human help. Always good news for the newcomer. And um, that's what had happened to me. Once that thinking had become established in me, anything was possible. Uh, so I set some pretty lofty goals for myself by the time I got to AA. And by the time I got to AA, I had passed, reached, or surpassed them all. By the time I got here, I had a book on the bestseller list. I had acted in a Broadway play. I had directed a television show, a, a film. I had had my own theater in New York. Um, I had done all of these things a time. Because when I'd leave, they'd move the business so I couldn't find it again. And... um and the, I didn't find out the reason until I took the alcoholic test. If you're new here, we have a test for alcoholism. Other, other diseases, they've got blood tests and x-rays. We've got an inventory. And if you do it, you'll pass. It's a pass-pass situation. And if you do the whole thing, if you sit down <laughs> and you read the whole mess, I'm resentful at them. I'm resentful at me for resenting them. I'm resentful at them for watching me resent them. And I've had sex with all of them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if you <laughs> read the whole horrible thing, you will actually see a picture of your alcoholism. When I saw the picture of my alcoholism, I saw that early on people were doing things behind my back. A little later on, they started talking behind my back. And in the last few horrible years, they started thinking behind my back. It's hard to catch them. Uh, <laughs> but you can, you can catch him. You just got to accuse him of it all the time, and you will catch the sons of bitches thinking behind your back. I guarantee it. <laughs> and uh, I was uh, in my early twenties, and my father had a massive stroke. I had just shot some heroin, and I was taught, brought to the hospital, and I couldn't be there for him or my mother or my brother. The curtain was down. and There's a few times in a boy's life you ought to be there for his old man. This was one of them, and I couldn't answer the bell, and I felt like a pig, like an animal. There were holes in my arm. The sound of the heart machine couldn't get through the curtain, you know, through my curtain. And uh, I don't think I've ever been more ashamed of myself in my life. And I had to find out what the problem was. I had to find out what the problem was, and I had to fix it quick. Because if I felt that way, I used to have this phrase I used to use all the time. I say, I can't fit the pain in my head. And I couldn't fit that pain in my head. And I knew what the problem was. It was heroin. It was hypodermic needles. And I swore I would never, ever do it again. And I didn't. And as long as I didn't, I was all right. As long as I didn't put a needle in my arm, I was okay. I wasn't the guy that showed up loaded that day. Now, I didn't get loaded because I knew my dad was sick. I got loaded because I was awake. Because that's what I do. And uh, 
I didn't for 13 years. Shortly after my father passed away, I was acting in a Broadway play. Dream come true for me. Something I had dreamt about my entire life. And, uh, and this new usherette walked in with long brown hair, and I took one look at her, and I didn't even say hello to her. I looked at her. I went back into the dressing room. I stood up on a chair, and I said, if anybody talks to the new usherette with long brown hair, I'll break all the bones in your hands and feet. And any time a guy would walk near Nancy, he'd kind of go, Ooh, and dash away. She didn't know what the hell was wrong, you know. And she took one look at me on stage, and she read my biography and saw that I was a filmmaker and came in the next day with a big book that said Orson Welles on it and sat in the back row so I'd have a way to strike up a conversation with her. We hadn't said word one to each other. And I just fell in love with this woman. The earth opened up beneath me, and I just fell in love with her. She was exotic to me. She was from Detroit. And uh, I, I literally had not been out of the Bronx. I mean, I thought there were like palm trees in Detroit. I was, uh, I, I, I really, I didn't know, you know. And uh, and uh, we, the world, we had the world at our feet. I was acting on Broadway. We were in our early 20s, living in the island of Manhattan, in one of the most exciting, extraordinary places in the world. And we had some great times. And we were going nowhere. We were a couple of dogs running on linoleum. We were going nowhere fast. And uh, we began the terrible alcoholic spiral. Nancy became very, very sick from prolonged exposure to me. And uh, <laughs> she just became nuttier than a fruitcake. And uh, one night I came home, and we had these 32-ounce iced tea tumblers in the house. I popped a cork on a bottle of wine. I emptied the entire bottle of wine into this cup. And I turn around, and, my, and she's, she's giving me one of these. I said, what? She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm having a glass of wine. <laughs> Can't a man have a glass of wine in his own home? We became so sick that at one point a guy lent us his car, and we sold his car. I will never forget this guy's voice on the phone as long as I live. He said, you sold my car? I lit. That's like house-sitting for someone, and they come back, and you're in escrow. And we were proud of it. We were proud of it. The alcoholic life becomes the only normal one, Right? Now, I understand why. It was the end of the month. We didn't have rent. Big duh there, right? And I looked into my wife's eyes, and I said, I am so sick of acting like a punk, irresponsible kid. Let's do the right thing. Let's not borrow money. Let's stand on our own two feet. Let's sell the car. Now, I want to tell you, I understand that. I understand it the same way that I understand that near the end, I got excited when I was told that I needed dental surgery. Normal people don't get excited about dental surgery. Now, there's people going like this. You don't get that in the Lions Club. No one identifies with that. Only in AA do people go, ooh, dental surgery. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I understand why. For the same reason I was able to sell the car. I leave the middle out. I go from announced dental surgery to painkiller. I leave the middle out, the surgery part. I leave out the surgery, the blood, the stitches, the pain. I leave that out. I go from let's stand on our own two feet and paying the rent. I leave out grand theft auto. 
I leave it out. I leave it out. I leave out. <laughs> I leave out forging a signature on a pink slip. I leave the whole thing out. When the guy calls, where's my car? Oh, <laughs> you're breaking up on me. <laughs> I leave it all out. So if you're new here, welcome to the middle. We're very big on the middle here. When people say, think it through, don't, don't worry about it for right now. Oh, man. We just got nuttier and nuttier and nuttier. This is, this is where we wound up. This was a good morning in the Redmond home by the time I got sober. I uh, went to the doctor and he said, Mr. Redmond, um, you have high blood pressure. You're going to have to lose some weight to bring blood pressure down. I said, I would like to do that. But I uh, drink alcohol and smoke marijuana before I go to bed every night, so I'm not going to be able to. <laughs> and he said, why don't I prescribe some medication for you? And I said, what a country. <laughs> and he prescribed for me chloral hydrate. <laughs> Now, what chloral hydrate is, is, you know, in those 30s films when there's an unruly sailor in a bar, they put a little white powder in his drink, he drinks it and falls straight backwards like a piece of masonite. That's chloral hydrate. It's a Mickey. It's a Mickey. It's a knockout drop. And I love these pills. I love them. I love them. I love these pills. Nancy comes home. I'm taking handfuls of knockout drops, and I'm slamming my arms into the wall to keep myself awake to enjoy my knockout drop. Because you... You don't want to just pass out and not and waste a good knockout drop. So I'm taking the pill, slamming body parts into the wall to keep myself awake to enjoy the knockout drop until I just short circuit eh, and I keel over. So now I'm becoming incontinent like the rest of the 30-year-old men in America. I'm wet in the bed because I can't get awake because I'm too full of Mickey. So one... <laughs> One night, I got up in the middle of the night and wet the wall. And in the morning, my wife was excited. Everybody, he wet the wall. He's moving towards the bathroom. It, it's progress, not perfection. It, everyone had a little hope, a little spring in their step that morning. That's not on the Wheaties box. That's not what America expects. That's not... Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. My wife reminded me of this. I think I was six years sober. I think if she had told me a minute sooner, my brain would have blowed up. I was in California. She was in New York. This is where this twisted melon had wound up. I called her. I said, honey, she was in New York. Everything's going to be okay. She, I don't know why she never, she should have just slammed the phone down. Anytime I said everything's going to be okay, I woke her up in the middle of the night one night. I said, everything's going to be okay. You shouldn't have to wake people up to tell them that, right? I said, everything's going to be okay. She said, really? I said, yeah, yeah, I got it. You know they make guns that shoot nails into wood? What about a gun that shoots wood onto nails? <laughs> she just inched her way to the other side of the bed. And uh, so I called her up from California. I said, honey, everything's going to be okay. She said, really, sweetheart? I said, yes, babe. M McDonald's is having a contest.
if the, every time you make a purchase, they give you a letter. If you spell out McDonald's, you make $2 million. All I need is the M and the N. <laughs> Everything's going to be all right. This is where we wound up. When uh, our older son, Michael, was born, we were surrounded by friends and family. There were a ton of phone calls, lots of flowers at the hospital. He was really welcomed into the world. And two years and nine months later, when Jesse was born, there was no flowers, no phone calls. There was nobody around. We had been completely isolated by the disease of alcoholism in just two years and nine months. And it wasn't because people didn't love us. <clears throat> a lot of people loved us. It just hurt too much to be around us. The ice around our heart had become so thick, it really had repelled everybody. And um, Jesse uh, had a problem with his heart. He had to go up to neonatal intensive care. And uh, that night, I got a call at home from a doctor at the hospital. Uh, and this uh, doctor called me and said, Mr. Redmond, your wife's in, oh, you know, you guys know that there's really no more wonderful place in a hospital to be than a maternity ward. Really, when everything's okay. And even if you're in a community, you know, if you're in God's hands. And there's no place worse in the universe to be than a maternity ward if everything ain't okay and if you're alone. And I mean alone like you know I mean alone. Alone. And, uh... And she was alone. And this doctor said, look, your, your wife's in really big trouble. She's in big trouble. She's all here, all alone. The baby's up in an incubator. We need you to come down here. And I said, look, I would love to come down. But uh, I, I can't find anybody to watch my two-year-old son. I can't. And she said to me, a perfect stranger, a doctor to boot, somebody I had never met before, said, I'll tell you what, my husband's home. Why don't I give you my, my phone number and address? You call him up and bring your son over to my house, and my husband will watch him. And I said no. I said no because there was no way I could not accept this woman's kindness or her generosity. I didn't know why at the time, but I think I know why today. Because I've seen it in so many newcomers. If I accepted her kindness, I would have had to take a look at my life for a second. Because this was a place I never even imagined I would wind up. When my older son was five years old, he came to me and he said, Dad, is there anything such as God? And I looked into the eyes of my perfect, perfect five-year-old baby boy and I said, No, Micah, there isn't. And I swear to you, I thought I was saving him some skin. I swear to you, I thought I was giving him the real deal. And I was saving him some heartache so he wouldn't be played like those saps and suckers out there. And I lived in a cold place by that time. I couldn't, you know, if anybody even talked about my father, I couldn't listen to it. I couldn't look at pictures of him. I couldn't discuss him with his grandsons. And I had the audacity being in that kind of condition, to look into the eyes of my son and tell him, because this is what I really feel, I really believe I was saying to my son. Worse than anything, worse than the fact that I was lying to him, worse than the fact that I was doing something absolutely antithetical to what I thought I was doing, because I thought I was giving the brave real deal. What I was doing, and our book points it out in the fourth chapter, and if you're new, please read it, because it speaks more eloquently to this than I ever can. It basically says, no, this is in fact the weakest, mushiest thinking of all. Worse than any of that, what I was in fact doing was looking into the eyes of a five-year-old baby and saying, sweetheart, you know when it's dark and you can't go to sleep and you're really scared? Tough, because that's all there is. That's really what I was saying to him. If that's not child abuse, give me a whooping any day. It's a horrible thing that I said to my son that day. On uh, 
April 20th, 1985, I crossed the line. I swore I would never cross again. I put a needle in my arm. By this time, uh, Michael was uh, six. He was making involuntary clicking noises with his throat that he couldn't stop making. He was diagnosed as functionally retarded because all his small motor skills were all screwed up, only for one reason, which we didn't find out later. He was scared. There was nothing physiologically wrong with him. He was scared all the time. He had become so distracted, he couldn't focus on small motor stuff. And uh, Jesse just started to disappear. Because if you get in between me and the drink, you got to disappear. I don't care if you're my lover, my wife, my relatives, my son. I don't care if you're my dreams. I don't care if you're my job. If you get in between me and the drink, you're going to vanish or you're going to become something less than human. Because I'm either going to walk through you or I'm going to walk around you. But I will get there. Believe me, my friend, I will get there every time. I might even wait a day. I might have to walk around you, and if I walk around you, i got to walk bigger and bigger circles because it hurts too much to see you. And how much vanishing can a baby bear until the baby eventually believes what they're being taught, which is they don't exist? So Jesse was caught up in that horrible cycle of our home, which is you either become pointlessly aggressive en route to a goal you never are able to achieve, or you just throw in the towel, just throw in the towel. What the hell is the use anyway? It's It's... Perfect alcoholic thinking. It's what's described in our third chapter, in that list of things we say about ourselves. What's the use anyhow? How did it happen again? I'll stop after two. And um, I crossed the line. I swore I would never cross again. I put a needle in my arm, and, and everything was pretty much gone by that time anyway. I called my therapist of record at that time, my first Jungian therapist, which was to become very important to me once I was to come into AA and read our book, and I was to find out something absolutely remarkable. I was to find out that Carl Jung himself said to the man who 12-stepped the man, who 12-stepped Bill Wilson, the exact same thing that this therapist said to me that morning. I don't think this therapist, he's, he's dead now, this therapist, but I don't think he knew that Jung had this experience with Bill Wilson, with, with Roland Hazard. But he, he said to Roland Hazard, to this guy who 12-stepped Debbie, he said, there's absolutely nothing that can be done for you. I can't help you. He had analyzed this guy, and the guy had still uh, gotten drunk. And that morning when I called my therapist, my therapist said that exact same thing. He said, I can't, there's nothing I can do for you. I said, what? He said, I can't help you. The only thing I can suggest is you attend a meeting of Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, or we have you institutionalized. Now, why I went to the AA meeting, I have no idea. On most other days, I would have gladly chosen the institution. I would have been with my people, colorful and adventurous people. That's also mental institutions that give you a lot of dope. It's free dope and colorful people, my kind of place. And um, why I went to the AA meeting, I don't know, but I did. I went to one AA meeting. I came home, poured myself a glass of wine, and I turn around, and Nancy's giving me, you know, one of these. I said, what? She said, are you supposed to drink in AA? I said, honey, they don't stop drinking completely. They're... They're, they're not uncivilized people. You just don't get drunk. <sighs> I went to one more meeting, and then I had uh, sent down to Texas for a new drug. It came back. It was already paid for. It was incumbent upon me to take it. And uh, <laughs> took that darn drug, and that drug hit me, man, and, I th and everything went away. I, I didn't even feel Jewish anymore. I mean, it's just everything just... <laughs> Everything just went away, you know, and I said, man, I don't think I'm going to need that AA thing. I really think I dodged this bullet, but the, it, it wore off. It always wore off.
And the next morning at 7 o'clock in the morning, I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning and put on my best clothes and got a bad check to write you and went down to sign up for the ANA. And I walked into that 7 a.m. meeting, man, and I looked around. If you're anything like me and you're new here tonight, you're looking around and you're saying to yourself, Alcoholics Anonymous. How did I wind up in Alcoholics Anonymous? How lame is this? This is beyond lame. This is beyond church, beyond synagogue. This is some plateau of lameness I never even imagined was available to me. Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome. Welcome. I just hated everything about it. I hated everything about AA. They get right up in your face, man, right up in your face and talk that long, unsolicited AA crap to you. You are now privy to an unending, unsolicited reservoir of information and advice. You know the guy. You know the guy who gets right up there right quick. You know, he's got one tooth with a cavity in it. You know the guy, right? Do I want what you've got? No. 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 But thanks for spitting on me. I really appreciate it. I couldn't believe it. And everything was a miracle. 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 I'm a miracle. You're a miracle. The furniture's a miracle. The coffee's a miracle. It's a miracle. <laughs> when do we hook a rug, folks? I, I just, I could, I mean, my, <laughs> my skin crawls when I think of it. I couldn't believe it. I looked around. I said, it is over. It is absolutely and completely over. Oh, my God. The only reason that I think I stayed, that I can imagine that I stayed, is I was out of plans. If you are new here, I pray for you that you are out of plans. If you're new and you have a plan, it's probably a butte. <laughs> Don't use your plan. Grab one of us after the meeting and share your plan with us. We want to know the plan. <laughs> My favorite newcomer plan, and it is the most used one I've seen in the last years, is the uh, one more dope deal to set myself up financially for sobriety plan. Uh, that sucker's going to wind up on the soft literature rack because it is, it is out there. And I guess I was out of plans. I kept coming back to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I just hated it. I hated it. My wife reached out to the Al-Anon family groups and... Uh, one of the most confusing things that I found as a newcomer in AA was I heard, I went to some meetings where people told jokes about Al-Anon. I'm not talking about good-natured jokes. We heard a good-natured joke about Al-Anon today. I'm talking about uh, ignorant, hurtful jokes. Um, and until I stuck around long enough to find out the people who were making them were just ignorant, hurtful people, although I judge no man, um, uh, I, I used to get very confused and hurt by the jokes because I'd be sitting in my seat and I was very proud of my wife for reaching out to Alan and I'd sit and go, isn't this like a good thing? Isn't this like what we're supposed to be working toward? It is. It is. And, and I, I've never met anybody who does that who has any functioning knowledge about the work that's done in the Alan family groups. You know. And uh, so if you're doing that on a public level, you're casting your vote that it's okay to do it. Um, I I'm, I'm, I get to vote. I used to have all the votes. I've, I'm, I've been whittled down to one, which I, I still upsets me a little bit. But um, my vote is that it's not okay. My vote is that it's not okay because there might be a newcomer in the crowd who's lucky enough to be involved in a family recovery, 
and it might it might make them feel weird. It might confuse them. So uh, I was very fortunate because for me, the only demonstration of the power of God in my life was my wife's miracle, and the fact that my sons were a little less frightened. A couple of weeks before I got sober, I reached for something at our dinner table, and my arm came near my older boy, and he went like this when my arm came near him, and it was a reflex, and my heart fell out of me because I never even imagined that I would wind up in that place, ever. I stuck around Alcoholics Anonymous for six months and enjoyed the gift of step none. <laughs> you know the gift of step none? Nothing. That's the gift of step none, and I was getting it pretty good. I was getting nothing pretty good. I was doing nothing, and I was getting nothing. And I knew I was going to drink. I knew it because I had seen the AA drill hundreds and hundreds of times in just six months. People came in, did the work and changed. People came in and didn't do the work, didn't change, got sick, got sicker, got to the podium, shared their gift with us or shared their ass right out of the door or stayed here and became columns of human sewage and sexual predators, although I judged no man. Because <laughs> I'm just too gall darn spiritually developed. It's just the way it is. So I knew I was going to drink, and uh, I asked a guy to sponsor me, and I did something I had rarely done in my life. I went to a good guy for something he had, and that was not my M.O. I used to go to drowning people and ask for swimming lessons, and when all they'd say is glub, 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 I'd get pissed off. But I went to this guy. I'd heard him talk in AA, and he made sure that I had done some reading from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he invited me to, do, to his apartment one afternoon, and he spent hours with me for fun and for free, and I couldn't figure out why. I really didn't know what he wanted. I figured he wanted something, and I'd find out later on. Hours and hours with me. He read chapter 5 to me, and on the way through, he took me through the first two steps. We reached step 3 and said a prayer together on our knees. He finished chapter 5, and he went back, and he gave me instructions on how to do a fourth step from the big book of AA. And now you hear some people say, and I know it's true for them, it's, some of the guys I sponsor say this, and I know it's true for them. Uh, some people say, you know what, I mostly resented myself. Now I know that's true for them, and I know it's absolutely not true for me. I hated myself, but nothing compared to how much I hated you. I hated you so much more than I hated me, I can't even tell you. I am, I am not a suicide guy. I'm a homicide guy. You know, I vastly prefer your death to mine. I always have. You go first. And I have, believe me, I am not, I don't want to offend anybody. I am not knocking the suicide people. This is not a put down. But I just, that's just where I go. You first. You first. So, <laughs> I had a lot of work to do on this inventory. A lot of work to do on it. And I worked on it for three months. I came back and I read it to my sponsor at nine months of sobriety. I did step six and seven for the first time. And it came time to do my eight step list. I try to share this anytime I talk because it's simply, the, the best reading of Step 8 I've ever heard in my life. And it came from a guy named Nino, who I had never seen before. I, I Before I heard him talk, read this one night, and I've never seen him since. He had a heavy New York accent. He was at my home group with a hospital group because he had hospital plastic on, and he had never read Chapter 5 before. And he got up to Step 8, and he read, made a list of all those we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Jesus Christ! <laughs> <laughs> he looked out into the room as if to say have you seen this do you know what's in here man 
It was so beautiful. It was so pure. It's the best reading of the eighth step I've ever heard because it's the only thing I saw when I saw the steps. I didn't see anything else. No, not those people, not that money, not that money. I would not have taken that much money if I knew I had to give it back. No way! Not the car! I'll never forget calling that guy up to pay him back for the car. He said, you're paying me back? It was like he was frozen on that end of the phone all that time, you know? <sighs> so I did up my A-step list, and I uh, put my wife and my kids down, and my pop down, everybody I'd ever worked for. And I had to not put myself on my A-step list. I know some people do. And I have uh, men I sponsor who put themselves on their A-step list, who put themselves on the top of their A-step list. I've been asked to share with you tonight my experience with the 12 steps. So I must tell you, I had to deliver, because you know, I had heard a lot of people putting themselves on the list. I had to, I knew that I needed to not be on the list. I had been making amends to myself, uh, hopefully at your expense, my entire life. And I needed to, I, and I don't put anybody down who does it. I am not, please do not take my story as an indictment of yours. I really know that the people who are on there need to be on there. And I equally know I needed to not be on there. And I set out to start doing my job in AA because I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. What was I going to do about my pop? He was dead. What was I going to do about the boys? They're a wreck. What am I going to do about Nancy? She's sick. At least I have a disease. What's her excuse? What's her excuse? She's got a disease too. But I didn't know that then. And uh, my sponsor wouldn't tell me. Now, I don't know if this is something he does with all the guys he sponsors. I don't know. Maybe with other guys he sponsors, he does tell them how to make amends. He wouldn't tell me. He didn't say you do A, B, C, and D. All he said to me, and he said it over and over again, is do your job. Do your job in AA and see what happens. I wish he had given me much more specific stuff. I could have gotten through this a lot faster. And uh, I started doing my job in AA. I had to start doing a lot of lame, lame, lame stuff. I had to start like going to flag football games, coach Little League. I had to start going to school with my kids. I had to stop doing what I do, which is the kid's sick, let him go into school and catch the bullet. Now I got to go into school and say, my kid's sick because we have been terribly ill. We need your help. And when the teacher would say to me, I just want to grab him and shake him, I'd have to say, he's all shook. He's all shook. We need something else. And the boys got tested, and and uh, and they they needed special ed, and, and they got resources cut loose for them, and they started getting taken care of. And I started spending some alcohol money on a bicycle, and I started spending some cocaine money on joint the forty dollar registration for Little League, doing the little tiny lame things that you guys told me I have to do. Last Halloween, I'm driving through my community on Halloween, going to an AA commitment, and I'm watching that great thing on Halloween, those excited kids running around the street and the parents getting a kick out of them. I'm watching this thing and I was overwhelmed with that feeling I've had a thousand, thousand times in the last 13 years. I felt a part of what was going on outside the window of my car. I didn't feel like it was once again the world flaunting the fact that I was on the edge of it, uncivilized, not part of it, and why I didn't know. Now, I know why I feel part of it, because for 12 years, I have spent a few bucks on candy and a few bucks on a jack-o'-lantern and made sure that my sons had a little costume, and that muscle has been getting exercised once a year for 12 years. There's no mystery here. For 12 years, I've gotten my sons birthday gifts on the day of their birthday, gifts that they wanted. 
Not once in 12 years have I gotten them the day after guilt potted palm, you know, that I wrote a hot check for. Not once. So on their birthday, I feel very relaxed. I feel very part of their life because that muscle has been exercised. If you're new here, your drinking muscle is stronger than mine. My not drinking muscle is stronger than yours. I'm not as close to my next drink as you. I only have 24 hours. I only have 24 hours. But I personally do not feel that I'm as close to my next drink as you are. If I am, something's really wrong. Whenever I hear anybody with time get up to a podium and say, I feel depressed, I feel new again, I always say to myself, no, I don't buy it. I don't think you feel new. I'm not saying you don't feel bad. You might feel really horrible, but I don't think you feel new. And if you think you feel new, you don't, you're not spending any time with any new people. You're not, man. They're shaking alcohol and drugs out of their spinal fluid. You don't feel new. You feel like crap. But you, And I'm not saying that you can't have time and feel like crap. I've done that plenty. But I know I don't feel new because I spend enough time with newcomers to know that I don't feel that bad. And um, I started doing my job in Alcoholics Anonymous. My wife and I needed to stay away from each other. We needed. I had to stop working on my marriage. My idea of working on a relationship is to talk to you until you change your mind. My idea of working on a relationship is to talk to you until your eyes roll back in your head and you keel over and on the way down you go, oh, okay. And I'm nuts. I'm nuts. I don't even, I don't even know what the hell, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I'm in the house. I don't even know how to clean my house. I've been so uncivilized. And in my sick mind, I don't feel grown up because I'm never acting grown up. I'm never, I don't know how to clean the house. I clean my house. And I figure somewhere in the back of this bent noodle that a certain amount of her housework should equal a certain amount of sex. Right? There should be like conversion tables on the back of cleaning products of housework to sex. So I'm never cleaning the house to live in a clean house. I'm cleaning the house and I'm going, I'm finished, hon. <laughs> and she's going, good. I had to start cleaning my house for God. Because I can't clean it for myself. I don't want to clean it. I don't know how to clean it. Cleaning the house for you, Father. Boy, I wish you had told me that my first day. If you get this, really get this thing, you'll clean your house for God. <laughs> I started feeling like a grown man for the first time in my life. And uh, our sons uh, started uh, experiencing some remarkable changes in their lives. They were real small when they came in and real sick. They were six and three. I was sober a couple of years, and I was making my kids lunch. I said to Michael, what do you want on your hot dog? And he said, I want mustard, onions, and lettuce. And I said, lettuce? He said, yeah, okay, I want lettuce. He walked away, and he came back about 45 minutes later and looked at me directly in the eyes, and I'm not altering one syllable. He said to me, I will never again allow your opinion of what I want affect what I ask for. <laughs> so I asked him to sponsor me at that point. A couple of years after that, Jesse had broken his wrist in a, uh, while he was playing, and he broke it in a growth plane. If you know anything about the way kids develop, a growth plane is cartilage that's going to turn to bone, and once it's set, it cannot be disturbed. It cannot be. 
It's got to be left alone. Well, they're brothers, so they're beating the crap out of each other. Ten minutes after he's back from the hospital, and I get right up in Micah's face, and I scream at him, and I let him know that this is not acceptable. This is a limit that cannot be crossed because his brother's uh, hand can't be messed with. And I yell at him, and he turns around, and he walks into his room, and he slams the door. Slams the door. So now I got the dad tick going, you know. Slam the door. So I go to the door, and I open the door, and before I can unload, he says to me, hold it. I didn't say you were wrong out there. You were right. But a big guy just got in my face and screamed and yelled. I didn't tell you you were wrong. Don't tell me I can't be mad. What's that? What the hell is that? That's Alcoholics Anonymous now. That's overcoming a fear of confrontation. That's telling somebody how you feel without telling them what to do. That's what he's heard his mother and I struggling with all this time and doing successfully sometimes and failing at sometimes. But it's in the air. It's what we're trying to do in our house. Um, I was a couple of years sober and I, uh, my son Jesse received, I believe, one of the greatest single compliments any human being can receive on the planet. But before I want to tell you what the compliment was, I want to tell you that I uh, had started going to Little League games, and uh, when I went to my first Little League game, my wife came to the game and looked over at the first base stands and just fell down laughing, because there's all the people in the first base stands, and then there's me in the sun, pissed off, you know? Absolutely psychotic. I'm here. I'm doing my job. I'm here. I'm here. I'm at the game. I'm here. I'm making amends. I'm here. The kids were thrilled to see me. Mr. Redmond's going to blow up, man. Look at him. I'm telling you. Look at him, man. <laughs> Going up down, up and down four hat sizes, just psychotic. It took me a couple of years for the voices to diminish in volume and number to just go and sit with the people in the first base stands, to just be at my sobriety station, to just be with the people, you know. And I had been doing it for a couple of years, sitting in the stands, and Jesse received this incredible compliment. He uh, was intentionally walked. Now... I don't think it really gets a lot better than that. If you're not a baseball fan, to be intentionally walked means they're scared of you and they want to get to the weenie behind you. And uh, and he didn't want to be a geek. You don't want to be a geek. He didn't want to jump up and down. So he just laid his bat down. you got to be cool. And he <laughs> trotted up the first baseline. And on the way up the first baseline, he turned to me. And I'm at my sobriety station. And he turned to me and he just shot me. Just that much stuff. Just a little bit. It's the old man. You don't want to spoil him. Don't be lame. Just a little bit. And... uh and I could have missed the whole thing. I could have missed the whole thing. And I've been with enough men who have been drunk on their kid's birthday one more time. And I tell them about the day my kid got walked. And I didn't hear about it. I was there. I was there. And uh see, they already know that I know about drinking because you told me that's the first thing i got to talk to them about. they got to know that I know about drinking and I didn't pick it up in my reading. And uh Jesse carries a powerful message to me and certainly carried it to some of the men that I've been fortunate enough to work with. Nancy and I, uh, we got so good at releasing one another with love, we lost track of each other. And uh, we really, uh, after some years of sobriety, really had to work very hard to come back together because we really, we really had lost track of each other. We had released each other so totally. <laughs> we had to stop releasing each other and really started getting uh, reacquainted and become lovers again. And really just think she's great. She's just adorable. I really do adore her. And uh, 
I used to wake up at night and look at her juggler vein pulsing up and down, and I'd say, can we just put a stop to that? <laughs> Maybe if I just hold my finger on it. <laughs> I just thought she was the source of everything wrong in my life. I really did. <laughs> and uh, And we're still working real hard at it. We've just recently started to pray and meditate and talk to each other about our day and really uh, really share some of each other's God with, with one another, to really show each other the God in each other. Um, I, uh, uh, when I was about a year sober, I was sponsoring a guy named Roland. And Roland used to call my house every night. And he'd leave a message on my machine every night. And he'd say, Scott, it's Roly. I'm sober. I love you. Good night. And he'd hang the phone up every night. Five years later, when I was six years sober, my son Micah came to me, the ki- you know, the kid who I told you had been so terribly ill. And he said, you know, Dad, I, I want to tell you that when, you know, a w- long time ago, I couldn't fall asleep until I heard Roland's voice on the, on the tape. Once I heard Roland's voice on the tape, I knew it was safe to go to sleep. But this is the little boy I told him there was no God. I told him there was no God, and I tried to rip God out of his life, and you guys came over the answering machine, and you tucked him in every night. You came and you got us. And um, I think a lot of nights he was just staying up till he passed out just too scary and once he he knew that roland wouldn't call unless i was sober he knew it and they have a powerful relationship the two of them today um in um our house in the last couple of minutes of any major sporting event it's usually all the guys i sponsor who come from another country call at that moment if it's the last two minutes of a basketball game a football game so last super bowl micah said hold it a second before the game started he calls up he says he makes a call i don't know he's calling i'm gonna hear him say Roland, can we get this over with now? <laughs> Roland said, I hear Roland screaming in Spanish, cursing at him. <laughs> they just love each other. <laughs> and um, I'd, uh, I guess about six, seven years ago, I came home from talking at an AA meeting. Jeez, I had saved a lot of lives that night. <laughs> right before this, this was great. My brother-in-law was in town, and he, uh, he's a drunk. And I, I was talking that night, and I figured I'd invite him to t- come to hear me talk. He'd hear me talk, and he'd never drink again. And uh, and I looked pretty good, you know, the family. I think he drank while I was talking that, that particular night. <laughs> I, think, I, I, think he drank, I think he drank while I was talking. <laughs> three years later, I get a call from a guy who says, Look, you don't know me, but three years ago, I was released from a mental institution. I stole a car and a gun, and I was going to kill myself, but I want to go 1 a.m. meeting, and I'm going to shoot myself. It was that meeting. And he, and that I spoke and he never drank again. So God said, I'll get somebody drunk, but cool yourself. <laughs> so I'll get somebody sober, but you know. At any rate, I came home from talking and, uh, I came out and said, Nan, how are you? She said, I'm fine, uh, but your son's having a bad acid trip. I went inside and my son, Michael, was playing with a headless doll under a black light, you know, in the next room. And I, uh, I went inside and I said a little prayer. And I uh, went out and I put my arms around my kid and I said, uh, this is a pill that's going to wear off and I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stay with you. And I called a psychiatrist who's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he talked to Mike on the phone and he prescribed some medication. And then another member of Alcoholics Anonymous went and picked it up and brought it back to our home. And I thanked the psychiatrist and I said, good night. And he said, oh, no, no, I'm not going to sleep until Micah goes to sleep. Now, I couldn't find anybody to watch him the night that his brother was sick and the night his brother was born. And that night he needed help. And Alcoholics Anonymous was all over him like a cheap suit. You guys didn't tell me that my kids weren't going to take drugs. 
You didn't tell me that my kids weren't going to get sick. You told me I would never, ever have to be alone again. I don't know if Mike is taking drugs or not now. I do know that he's experiencing a very successful life. Uh, shortly after this experience, my uh, wife came home. She said, oh, I said, how was your meeting? She said, it was so great. And I talked about the situation with Mike. I said, did you have to share about it on a public level? <laughs> she, she said, honey, do you understand what my club's all about? <laughs> really? Would you like to read some literature? Because, you see, if I hadn't heard people come to podiums of Alcoholics Anonymous and talk about staying sober through everything, I would have had no idea of what to do. And uh, Mike's just, he's having a great time. I, I, you know, he's uh, he, he uh, <laughs> graduated high school and then uh, went down to Mexico and worked with the Zabatista revolutionaries for a year. <laughs> My wife and I, during that eight-month period, we just raise our hands at meetings. They call on us and we go, ah! and then just... <laughs> Then just put our hand down. <laughs> he was in San Antonio. He came back to the United States through San Antonio. And I told him I had been down there for a conference. I said, San Antonio is a great place, Mike. He had been in the jungle, in the mountains for six months. He, said, he calls me from San Antonio. He says, Dad, this is the greatest city I've ever been in. I said, really? He said, yeah. I, I ate a meal, and somebody had already paid for my meal before I paid for it. I said, son... Do you look indigent? I said, yeah, Dad, I do. I said, someone took pity on you. Um, <laughs> he's going to college up in Olympia, Washington at Evergreen uh, College. He's just having a very successful time, having a great time. Jesse's a very accomplished musician and a math whiz, and he's having a great time. And uh, they're just adorable. They're great guys. They're... Uh, 19 and 16. And uh, I just want to tell you, and, and my wife and I are celebrating 23 years of marriage. We're having, a, we're having us a really good time. And I want to tell you, I don't believe for one second that that's because God likes us more than the people who are getting divorced, or God likes us more whose kid, than the people whose kids have died from alcoholism, or who have stayed nuts, or any of that stuff. That's just what's happening in my house. Like the week that my kid got popped for drugs. That was what was happening at my house that week. I got to do my job in Alcoholics Anonymous. If my kids are sick, if my kids are well, if Nancy and I stay together or we get divorced. i got to do my job in AA if I'm living on the house on the hill or if I'm living in a refrigerator box. Now, you know what I prefer. All right. We got nailed in something called the Northridge earthquake. You probably heard about it out here. It was a couple of years ago and it was a terrible thing. We were right in the heart of it and we got physically injured, mentally injured. Our, our place got wrecked. We, we were badly abused in this thing. It was terrible. And shortly after it, I was at an AA uh, conference out of town, and a woman at this conference said to me, oh, I'm so glad God got us out of L.A. before the quake. And I said, okay, so he likes you, but, but we're crap, but he likes you. And she said to me, well, I guess he just felt you had some lessons to learn. Oh, bartender. Hello. Hello. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. If I got a god up there saying, get him, get the Redmond boy, get him. No evacuation plan for you, Jew boy. Get him. Get him. Turn his wife to salt. Kill his goat. Put a finger in his eye. Get him. I'm out of here. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Now, I know that God's keeping her sober. Wouldn't keep me sober for 15 seconds. And I'd like to see her after her next lesson. Uh, 
hope it's a good one. My first year of sobriety, I was uh, fancy myself a show business big shot. I had a ghost writing job for 20th Century Fox. I, uh, uh, at the end of the year, I was being considered to direct a situation comedy. And I thought by this time, because I was sponsoring some men and I was sort of becoming a spiritual Goliath, you know, at that time, I thought if I got this job directing the situation comedy, it would be very good for the men that I sponsor. It would benefit them because they'd see me prosper thusly. <laughs> I didn't get the job and I almost drank. And I went to my sponsor and I told him what had happened. And he said, oh, I guess you have the show business God. I said, what? He said, well, what keeps you sober? I said, God. He said, God keeps you sober and you didn't get a show business job and you almost drank. So I guess you have the show business God and he has abandoned you utterly. <sighs> I had to sit down and do the inventory. I was resentful at the company for not giving me the job and I was resentful at myself for almost drinking. Now, I had heard people, when I came into AA, I heard people, God getting them into relationships. God getting people jobs. God getting people parking spaces. Oh, no, not the parking space, God. Not the parking space, God. He's probably not real big around these parts anyway. But in, in New York and L.A., he's living large. Living large. I talk about the parking space, God, in Montana. It's like cows watching a passing train. No one even knows what the hell I'm talking one big parking lot for God's sake. He said, when you do this inventory, when you do step six and seven, you better have a talk about what you're going to have to do to stay sober. You better start living in a world big enough so a lot of stuff can happen and you don't get to drink. So I said a prayer when I did step six and seven that day. And I said, Father, I'm willing to do anything. I'll do anything. Take show business. You got it. I'll do anything for a living. Just keep me sober. And within three months, I was working as a cook on a catering truck. <clears throat> and I looked up on that truck and I said to God, I did not mean this. I, we've had a grotesque misunderstanding. Now, in Los, in Los Angeles, when they make a TV show or a movie, they hire a caterer who cooks on a catering truck and you follow the company around, you make food for them. It's a teamster job because you're on a vehicle on a movie set. It's big bucks. It's the best cooking job I ever had. It's a lot of money, but I'm Scott Redman. The first movie that I cater, the executive producer and star of the movie is a guy who I've worked with in the business. He sticks his head on the truck that morning and he says, can I have a burrito, Scott? <laughs> and I said, what's happened to me? And he said, is this your truck? I said, no, but it's my spatula. <laughs> I got home and I called my sponsor and I said, oh, we're getting the gift of sobriety now. Oh, boy. It's beautiful. <laughs> he said, sounds like you've got a resentment. I'm resentful with Scott for working on a kitchen truck. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. A five-bagger for sure. What am I going to ask God to take away? The burrito, the truck, the guy. What am I asking God to take away? Resentment's no big deal. It's just the source of all spiritual illness, the great destroyer of all alcoholics. It'll cut you off from the sunlight of the spirit, drag your ass out, and kill you dead. But don't be alarmed. No big deal. <laughs> I'm going to die. 
I'm going to die. This is going to throw me out of my own life. The spiritual tapeworm is going to eat my brain and my heart, and I'm going to drink. What am I asking God to take away? Blue skies. God's got a magic wand. He comes down and touches me on the head. What poison in me, if it was gone, would I be okay? I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. I have false pride. I'm grandiose. I'm impatient. Things aren't moving along. I'm playing God. Things aren't going according to the Scott Redmond program. A fabulous program. <laughs> I'm ungrateful. I'm working. I'm making dough and I'm not grateful. This is the list I had to bring to my God, man. And I had to learn how to show up and give them a dime for their nickel and how to be a good cook. I wound up feeding people who had been my assistant directors and stage managers. I wound up feeding people who are actors who I had directed in soap operas. I used to come back to my home group with a new tale of humiliation every week. The guys would howl. They would scream. <laughs> Tears would stream down their face. The, the, more, the bigger the humiliation, you know? And I worked that tenth step until my hand fell off and I changed and I, I reached the top rank in Alcoholics Anonymous, which I believe is child of God. And once you hit that rank, there ain't no place to fall from. And I got to help some people who felt they had fallen from a height. I had a friend named Paul who felt that he had fallen from a height. And he used to say this prayer. He'd say, Father, I'm willing to do anything for a living. Just keep me sober. But please don't let it be as bad as what you did to Scott. <laughs> I was so glad to help him. I had cooked for about three years, and I got an overture from a company called Ketchum Public Relations in New York, uh, uh, telling me I was being considered for a, a comedy writing job, and they needed a videotape from me. I did that, and I thought by this time, this time, this would benefit my sponsees if I got this job. What? Because <laughs> they would see me deal with all this adversity and triumph in the end. All right. So my brain blew up. I went mad. I just went completely lost it. I, I stopped living in today. I tried to excuse my greed and avarice. And uh, and I surrendered it. I, I wrote the inventory. I called my sponsor. I read it to him. And uh, before I heard about the job. And a couple of weeks after that, boy, you could display pork products in here. Right? <laughs> Man. Usually people fall asleep during my talk. They're getting more awake. I thought it was because I was interesting. It's hypothermia. Man. <laughs> I have a sister standing there saying they think he thinks they're listening to him. Uh, and uh, and I, I, I wrote the inventory before I even heard about it. I read it to my sponsor. I was fine. And then I got a call from Catching Public Relations telling me I did not get the job and I was fine with it. And then a short time after that, I get a call from my catering company asking me to cater a commercial in the mountains above L.A. And I said, sure, fine. I get in the truck and I get up to the chute. I grab the call sheet, which gives you all the information about uh, the chute. And it, it says that uh, the uh, commercials were for Ketchum Public Relations. I'm feeding them now. Now I'm feeding them. I look down at the end of the truck and there's a guy videotaping me. I said, what are you doing? He said... I'm taping the making of the commercial. He's taping my humiliation. He's taping my humiliation. He's going to go back to New York and show him the tape, and they're going to go, is that Scott Redman with the meatloaf there? Oh, my God, the poor son of a bitch. I get off work, and I call my sponsor, and I said, uh, oh, we're really getting the gift now. Oh, oh, are we getting the gift now? It's a miracle. 
America, America, America. <laughs> he said to me, <laughs> I guess God had enough cooks, enough writers, and he needed a few cooks today. And he said, you know, you told God you wanted to work for Ketchum, and you forgot to tell him what you wanted to do. <laughs> a couple of years ago, my wife was walking through our bedroom, and she heard me saying to the phone, let's say the aliens are coming. Uh, I'm, I'm talking to a new guy. I said, <laughs> I am not telling you the aliens aren't coming. That's an outside interest. They might well be coming. I have one question for you. Why are they coming for you? Why have they traversed a universe for your sorry ass? You're 11 days sober. You have no life. Why have they come for you? Don't you think they'll call a cop or something? He's sleeping with a Bible on his chest to ward them off. They're going to traverse a galaxy, walk into his bedroom, go, oh, no, the Bible, let's go home. If you're new and the aliens are coming for you, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome home. Thanks, folks. <laughs>